Welcome to the Maximizing Outcomes Podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Achieving bigger and better results with money, family, and business isn't about creating a bigger to-do list for yourself. It's about who can help you create results without you having to do all the work. Listen as we provide uncommon perspectives, powerful resources, and experienced people that can help you maximize outcomes in your life. Let's get to the show. Hello, and welcome to Maximizing Outcomes with Jim McGovern. Jim, what's going on, my man? Eric, I'm doing great. You sound like you're a little under the weather, though. Ah, you know, it's, uh, I'd say it's that time of the year, but it's been like, what, two years COVID has been around, and I got it for my first time uh, last week, so I'm part of the club. Finally got you. Yeah, not a club I was hoping to join, but uh, here we are. Well, we were joking before we started here that you've got the extra good radio voice here today. So (laughs) That movie trailer. If anybody has any movie trailer uh, opportunities in a world where the greatest empire, yeah, we can can go there, but we're not going to talk about that today. All right. How about (laughs) we talk about buy-sell agreements instead? Yes. Okay. Business owners, ears are perking, right? This is uh, highly important. Yeah, this is one of the most important documents that business owners should have it doesn't seem to get a whole lot of attention so i think there's just very few owners that have one and Mm -hmm. the ones that have them often have really important elements that are completely missing so we want to dedicate a whole episode just to this topic okay so why is a buy sell agreement um so important for business owners and maybe even back up a little bit can you define what a buy sell agreement is perfect place to start Uh, in, in really simple terms a buy sell agreement is an ownership transfer agreement. So we're going to explain more in a little bit about why that's um, so important, but I want to talk a little bit why that's so relevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, And just think about what a business represents. So in most cases, we're dealing with people that have tied up a very large portion of their net worth in their company. Mm -hmm. And like I mentioned in our last episode, they poured their blood, sweat, and tears into the company and, and probably a very large portion of their own money. And you may have other co-owners that are active in the business as well. And they've done the exact same thing as you. So it's emotional, whether we want to admit that or not, there's a lot of emotions when it comes to our companies. It's your life's work. It's your family's livelihood. Um, It's ultimately going to be a pretty large part of your own retirement, or it might be fueling your next venture. And in a lot of cases, you know, children follow in their parents' footsteps and it may be a career path for your kids or even your grandkids. So there's a lot at stake. So the thing that overshadows everything we just went through is the fact that the business is an illiquid asset. You know, small businesses don't typically have the man- management structure or the depth of a large publicly traded company. Uh, they don't have the ability to raise capital as quickly and as easily. Um, you know, in small businesses, they just don't have that ready-made liquid market like the New York Stock Exchange, where if you decide, I don't want to own this company anymore, you just click a few buttons and your ownership is converted to cash within a couple of days. Small business owners just don't have that luxury. Yeah. So that's what's important about a buy-sell agreement is that we're going to start to work in a way to create a ready-made market for the business. Okay. So you mentioned it is you mentioned it's an ownership transfer agreement. So can you break that down a little bit more um, and what it actually does for the business owner? Sure. So let's let's just start with real practical terms. So like I said a moment ago, it's an agreement that creates the market for the business to change hands. Okay. So the whole agreement is going to be based on certain triggering events, as we call them. Uh, so certain triggering events that occur, and it's going to specify who is going to be the buyer of the company, as well as who's going to be the seller of the company. 
So when you think of a triggering event, when we think about the you know, what the buy-sell agreement is outlining, it's going to outline things like how is the value of this business determined? Um, who can and who cannot be a buyer of the company? Who has to be a buyer or a seller? Um, how is the money going to be paid? When's the money going to be received? And then I think one of the most overlooked parts of this is where's the money going to come from? So that's really what what the basics of a, of a buy-sell agreement is, is starting to put together for the owner. Okay. So can this be done at any time, I guess, is, is where my next question goes. It can be done at any time. Um, you know, this isn't a plan that comes together like overnight. You know, this is going to be some conversations with the, uh, with the attorney, with the advisors, with the CPA, and, and, and obviously the other owners, and, and starting to figure out, okay, well, what do we want this agreement to include? How are we going to put this together? And there's going to be some decisions that have to be made. So you can do it at any time, but it, it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds fairly complicated, quite honestly. Um, but if it's done correctly and if it's done, I mean, you got to put a lot of thought into this, I'm assuming, and have a good team around you. What else does it do for the company? Um, and maybe there's multiple owners. So how does that work? So let's start with, with the business first. So from, from the business's standpoint, it's going to help with the ongoing continuity of the company, the ongoing viability of the company, because we want to make sure that the business itself can survive these triggering events. And you know we don't just want a company to just survive. We want to make sure that it's positioned to thrive in the mm -hmm. future. But that's what it does for the business itself. Um, for the owners, it's going to help make sure that there's money available when these triggering events occur and that the money that's needed to facilitate the transfer of ownership is actually there. Because if the money's not there when the agreement says you need it, you're going to have some problems on your hands. And you know, I'd say last but not least on this is that you want to make sure that the agreement is fair to all the parties that are involved. And this fairness part is where a lot of plans are short-sighted. Mm -hmm. And if somebody feels like they're going to get the short end of the stick, big problems are going to pop up. And with the amount of money that's at stake, it's going to get ugly. And when things get ugly, they can turn into outrageously expensive litigation. Yeah. So we don't, we don't want to put this together in a, in a careless manner. You have to be very thoughtful and very fair as these agreements come together. Yeah. All right. Well, you started this with uh, a lot of business owners don't have this. So how common is it with owners? Sadly, it's it's very uncommon. Really? Uh, most owners that I meet either have never heard of this before or yeah, maybe they've heard of it, but like other areas of planning, they're saying, oh, yeah, yeah we're going to get to this later. And years go by and later still hasn't happened. And I think a lot of owners will just incorrectly assume that this kind of stuff is spelled out in their operating agreement. And you know, some of it can be spelled out in the operating agreement. Uh, but it's it's almost always better off being its own standalone document. Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. Number one, it, it tends to be a lot more thorough when it's a separate document, but it's also more private. So for the people who have agreements, I see way too many times is that they're, they're oversimplified. Um, they have errors with the funding of the agreement or how the company is going to be valued. And a lot of them are just outdated. They haven't been touched in years mm -hmm. or... Yeah, you know, maybe it's it's it was put together a few years ago, but it doesn't address some of the most likely triggering events that you're probably going to see as an owner. So, you know, a lot of people will refer to a buy sell agreement as, you know, simply the the will of a business, and they're really addressing a big fear of, hey, if one of the owners dies, what happens? So this certainly has to be considered, but there's a lot of other triggering events that are much more probable and they're completely missing from the document or they aren't properly or thoroughly addressed. So 
let me give you an example real quick. I, w- I want to put this into fairly practical terms, and okay. I just want everyone to think of just basic financial planning. So if you have a, a financial plan and the only event that is addressed in that plan is retirement, and maybe retirement's a couple decades off in the future, that might be okay. But how many ways is that plan not addressing real life? How mm-hmm. many different ways can that plan fail? So there's there's certain provisions that should be in a financial plan for all the life events you're going to live through, both the expected and unexpected, not just retirement, because there's a lot of life you're going to live between now and retirement. So a financial plan should include things like how you can educate the kids. What about if an emergency pops up? What about paying off debt or career changes? Or what if tax laws change? And there should be room in that financial plan to take advantage of opportunities. And you should have contingencies built in place. Yeah, what if you get sued? What if you have a health change? What if you were to die? So if you, if you think about financial planning and we relate it to business planning, I would think of financial planning as almost like a family success or family succession and continuity plan. Mm-hmm. It's very similar for a business. You know, The buy-sell agreement is part of business planning and business continuity planning. So it's similar. It's just coming at the business from a different angle and just thinking about as the business goes through all these different life events, What's going to happen to the business? What's going to happen to all the owners? But it's not just, it doesn't just stop there because it's also what impact does it have on their families? What's a triple uh, trickle down effect on their employees or their customers? So there's, there's a lot that goes into this. Yeah. I mean, I, just as you were talking, I was thinking, man, you know, for, for a lot of business owners, uh, the pandemic was huge, right? And if they didn't have some sort of plan or something built into this. Uh, because, you know, as well as I did, a lot of people made an exit. They're like, okay, I'm done. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take, uh, I'm going to go ahead and retire earlier or whatever. So there's some triggering events right there that, you know, that, that could have happened. But there's a lot to think about. So can you kind of outline what goes into the agreement a little bit more for me? Yeah, so there's four main topics that go into sort of the nuts and bolts of buy-sell agreement planning. Okay. So the first one I've already mentioned, that's triggering events. So what's going to cause this this agreement to um, basically become active? The second thing is dealing with the people. So who can buy or sell shares? And I really want to emphasize the word can. That means that you may or you may not buy shares of the business, but it should also spell out who must buy or sell shares. Remember, we're trying to create a market for the business if some of these terrible events occur. So we need to have people who have the option to buy in but there also is going to be other people that have to be required to buy or sell. The third thing is the value of the company. How are we going to determine what the company is worth when one of these triggering events occur? Mm-hmm. And we've seen just disasters over the years where this valuation part wasn't really thought through. Uh, but I'm going to spend a little bit more time on that on that later on. And then the fourth factor is the money factor. So this is going to, what's going to facilitate the ability for people to transact. So where's the money going to come from? When's the money going to be paid? How is it going to be paid? So those are the four big components of a of a thorough buy-sell agreement. It's triggering events. It's dealing with the people, the value, and the money. Okay. You said triggering events a lot. And my mind is reeling. Obviously, it goes, I guess, to a dark place. Uh, but, you know, death, uh, maybe loss of uh, cognitive ability. Uh, some of those things would be triggering events. But what else are triggering events? Yeah, we're going to start off with death because that is the one that's most commonly addressed in a buy-sell agreement. And it's mm-hmm. also, I think, even without an agreement, it's just in the back of the minds of many owners that have other co-owners that they're thinking, okay, if, if I die, what happens to my business? Yeah. So I'll just give the audience an example here that you know, if Eric and I own a business and I die, will does Eric continue to own 
50% of the business like he does right now and my wife or my kids on the other 50%. You know, the thing about it is my share of the business is my property. If we don't have an agreement in place, I might have specified in my will that I give all of my assets to my wife or I give a certain amount to my kids. And the bottom line is without Eric and I having some kind of an agreement in place, he may not be in the spot that he intended to be in. Mm -hmm. Right. So in a business where the spouse and the kids are not involved in the company, it's pretty common to have the surviving owner. So in this case, if I died, this would be Eric, that he would buy me out upon my death. Uh, and that may be a great situation for everybody. So if I die, my wife gets a check for the full value of my shares of the business. Eric is now the sole owner of the company and uh, he gets to continue on in, in this example. Uh, but, you know, I see a lot of agreements where that's just like automatically done. But I think you have to also weigh the fact that in a lot of situations, the family is involved in the business and you may have a different set of considerations here. So, you know, upon death, does the family have the experience to step into the shoes of the active owner? You know, and, and in a lot of families, you know, the, the, the spouse, the kids are they're very involved in the business. So it may not be right that, you know, you have a family member that is sort of a passive owner. They say, well, you know, Jim died. Here I am, Eric. And he's like, you haven't spent a day in this business. You have no idea what you're doing. Mm -hmm. But you might have another situation where the family is incredibly competent, very talented. And maybe the idea was that someday, maybe my kids were going to become my successor in the company. And that was a plan Eric and I talked about. But if our agreement requires my family to sell those shares, my kids may be blocked from ownership in this company forever. So yeah. it's not it's not a one size fits all situation, and this is a really a big reason why I stress to owners that when you put an agreement in place, you have to review these things every single year. You know, circumstances can change, feelings change, talent changes, and you just want to make sure that your current agreement is is spelled out with the best of intentions of where you are right now. Yeah, so that's I, that's the big one. So Eric, well, I, I just. I, I... That kind of breaks my heart, to be honest with you, because you've got a family that maybe the 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 owner, that was their legacy to their family, and they're going to continue the business. And it was, you know, but without that agreement, like you said, that could be out the window. And mm -hmm. and that was never the intention, but that's the rules, right? I mean, that's, man, that, that's right. We see this in situations where maybe Eric and I were brothers. Right. And his kids work in the family, work in the business and my kids work in the business and you know, everyone, everyone's great. But all of a sudden I die and my kids have to sell to Eric. And, uh, you know, now they're now they're working for Uncle Eric the rest of their life. And now Eric's kids someday become the owners of the company and they're working mm -hmm. for their cousins. So, again, there's situations where it absolutely makes sense to require the company to be sold to the other shareholders and other situations where that should not be the case. Yeah, maybe my wife is, is already in the business. Maybe she's very talented. Maybe she should maybe she could run the company better than I can. So we just want to make sure that this whole subject of death, this triggering event, is is customized to the your actual experience and your actual situation. Yeah, and that goes back to what you were saying about the evaluation. Because if you don't have that built in there correctly, mm -hmm. then the sale could just be completely unfair. And that's right. Oh, geez. Yeah, I'm going to give nightmare. an example of that a little bit later when we get into the valuation piece. But uh, but yeah, that's where you even see lawsuits come up. It's like, wait a minute, I sold yeah. this company for what price? Yeah. So I'm I'm going to run through a list of some other triggering events that are. I would say some of these I, I see in buy-sell agreements, but there's a lot that are just never addressed. Okay. You know, everyone fears, hey, if I die, what happens to my company? But what's much more common than death is disability. Mm. And I, I can't even count how many agreements we've looked at where disability was completely ignored or it was addressed, it just wasn't addressed properly. So there's a much, there's a much 
higher probability that Eric or I would exit this company um, while we're alive. I mean, death can happen, but it's probably the least likely to occur. Hmm. So we want to make sure disability is addressed. Divorce is a big one. You know, oh, didn't without, think about that. Without addressing divorce, there's a lot of people that fear a disgruntled ex-spouse becoming an owner in the business and causing some problems. Mm-hmm. So some agreements will force the owner who's going through the divorce, it forces them to sell their shares of the business. And I think that can be pretty harsh. So it might be better to have the agreement set up so that the owner that's going through the divorce has the first right of refusal to buy their shares of their own company back from the ex-spouse first so they can stay as an owner of their company versus being forced to sell to other owners. A second one is is gifting. So you figure, especially if you know, there's a bunch of owners in the company, I mean, they may be different ages and they're doing their estate plans at different times. So you might have an owner with good intentions that's looking at their projected estate tax saying, you know, I want to give some of these shares out of my estate now. And, you know, next thing you know, what if what if somebody wants to give shares of their company to somebody else in the family and you don't want that person being an owner? So mm-hmm. it might feel like a great gift for some or all of my shares in the business to go to my kids or grandkids, but how does Eric feel about that? Yeah. So we don't want to accidentally be in business with the wrong people. Another one's retirement. So if if Eric decided to retire tomorrow, the agreement should specify how's he going to get paid out. So if we have a company and it's worth maybe $20 million and he owns half of it, and he says, hey, tomorrow's the day I'm retiring, well, that means he's owed $10 million. Our business probably doesn't have an extra $10 million laying around just to write him a check and mm-hmm. you know, maybe give him a gold watch and send him off into the sunset. The business is probably going to have to make payments to him. But how's he going to be taxed? How am I going to be taxed? Where's the business getting the money from? Um, what kinds of risks is he taking? What am I taking? And the big one that people forget about is what if there's more owners? What if there's a third or a fourth co-owner? And a year after Eric retires, owner number three says, hey, Eric's having a pretty good time in retirement. I think I want to retire too. So could our business really afford to make payments to Eric, who's retired, and this other owner decides they want to retire too? And you know, maybe it's something where there should be an adjustment in place. There should be an agreement that if multiple owners are retiring at once, then there has to be some kind of adjustment to the payments. Otherwise, the business could go under. And if yeah. the business goes under, nobody's going to win. Nobody's Eric's not going to get his payments. <laughs> the other owner's not getting it. I don't have a job anymore. So that's bad. So you have to really think through not just retirement in generic sense, but how is the business going to buy you out over time? And, and what happens if more than one person wants to retire? Uh, let me breeze through a few other ones here. Uh, and these these sometimes can sound logical, but they can really be a disaster. What if you want to sell to somebody else? So I mentioned earlier that the agreement should spell out who can and who cannot be an owner in the company, right. but it also should specify who may and who may not buy the company. So maybe there's a fallout with the owners. And one decides privately that they're just going to sell their stake in the company. They want out, but they're going to sell to a competitor. Or even worse, they sell it to somebody with a bad reputation that could really damage this company. So we have to make sure that that kind of stuff can't happen. Um, What if there's a termination from the business? So how does the agreement handle things like a loss of a professional license? What if Eric just decides to quit one day? Um, What if an owner is competing with a business once they terminate? Um, What about if they expose trade secrets or they breach other forms of confidentiality? So we have to deal with a termination from the business that wasn't just like a death, disability, or retirement. We have to address things like bankruptcy. Uh, What if you start competing with the entity? What if you start competing with this business? What if you do things that jeopardize 
and cause us to lose something like our S-Corp uh, status. That could cause some serious tax issues. Uh, what if you try to dissolve the, the company? What if we get an offer to go public? Uh, what if you try to assign your rights in this buy-sell agreement? So you're starting to go through this and it's, you know, there, I just rattled off maybe a dozen or so triggering events. Yeah. And, you know, the point is not to try to memorize these and figure it out. The, the whole point is that this needs to be a very, very thorough document. That's why it really should be a standalone document. And I know there's people listening right now that have agreements in place and they're thinking to themselves, yeah, I don't ever remember discussing these topics. And if you don't remember discussing them, they're probably not even in the agreement itself. That's no bueno. <laughs> so, so what about those that are just getting started? I mean, if they, if they're thinking, oh man, you know, this is something I haven't even looked at yet. What are some tips that you can give them? So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you five tips. The first tip is when you draft the agreement, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the buyer as well as the shoes of the seller. So a lot of times people draft an agreement, they just picture themselves being bought out. Okay, great. Well, that might not be the case. Right. So, so think of the transaction on both sides. If I had to be the buyer, how does this feel? If I was the seller, how does this feel? Because the truth is you have no idea which one you're going to be. You don't know if you're going to reach retirement. You don't know if you're going to die before retirement. What if you have a disability? What if you go to some of the other issues that we discussed? So you want to make sure that you're getting fair for what's you on your end. And, you know, you're also making decisions that this company is going to be around because if some of these payments have to be made over a long period of time, you, you can't back the company into a quarter where they're going to go out of business. That's bad for everybody. Mm -hmm. So again, you have to think about all these events. It's like, well, what if it happens right now? What will we do? What if it happens in you know 10 or 15 years? So that's really tip number one is just really think through you as a buyer and, and you as a seller. Let's jump into uh, the second tip here. So you may want to have triggering events that work differently for different owners. So take a company that has multiple owners. You may have owners that are really close to retirement. You may have others that are much younger. So it might, it might be like a 15 to 20 year age gap. Mm -hmm. So if a younger shareholder goes through a permanent disability, but the older shareholders are really close to retirement, do they really want to buy more shares of the company when they're that close to retirement? Especially if they didn't have the cash right now to buy out this younger shareholder. Yeah. What do they do? Do they, do they finance the buyout? and just push back their retirement. Um, another example would be if you had an owner, or I'm sorry, a company with uh, with three owners. You know, Maybe it's it's me, it's Eric, and it's one other person. So Eric maybe owns 40% of the company. Maybe I own 35% and our third owner owns 25%. Well, it might be logical. We say, well, if Eric dies, let's buy him out. But if me and the other owner are gonna split Eric's shares evenly, Again, might sound logical. His 40% means I'm going to get an extra 20. So I'm up to 55% now. Mm -hmm. And the third shareholder now owns 45%. So how do they feel about me being the majority shareholder and they're the minority shareholder? Like, how are they ever going to outvote me? I own 55%. So that might not really be the way that all three of us as owners decide that that's how we want this to go down. So again, just start to think through these triggering events, look at the age differences, and just start to think through Man, there might be some different ways we have to structure this based on each event and each owner. Yeah, that's that's a lot to think about, man. Uh, gee, many Christmas. A lot to this stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. so let me go for just a couple more tips here. Uh, okay. The third one, you mentioned valuation earlier. Um, the valuation really should be the fair market value of the business, and this should be updated regularly. We just did an episode on business valuations. It's much, much easier 
to not only do evaluation now than ever before, it's faster, it's cheaper, it's easier to update. So there's not really much of a benefit anymore to having an old uh, formula-based buy-sell agreement because that might not even stand up in court. We also don't want to use a low-ball number. You know, A lot of these agreements will have something like the book value of the company. Well, what's book value? That's just the assets of the company minus its liabilities. That has nothing to do with what that company might sell for on the open market. So again, on our hypothetical $20 million company, the book value of the company might only be a million dollars. But yet, if we sold it to a third party in the open market, we might get 20. Mm -hmm. So that would be awful. I mean, if, if Eric's family finds out that he, they only got a million dollars of value when they could have got $10 million of value, they're absolutely going to hire an attorney and they're going to try oh, to yeah. dismiss us, right? In two seconds. In fact, you might come back from the dead just to, just to kill right. me. Just right? make sure it's going to happen. <laughs> right. The other thing is the IRS is not in the dark on how these things work. Mm -hmm. They not only can, but they will challenge that value and they'll hire their own valuation firm. And if they find that your company was worth way more than what this agreement stated, they're going to come after you. And they don't really lose these types of lawsuits very often. So just if you have fair market value and you've done your valuations regularly, you're far less likely to run into any, any challenges or any hiccups with the IRS. So get the valuations handled properly in the agreement. The fourth tip, and this sounds like a no-brainer, but again, you'd be surprised how many gaps we see of this is Get as much of the risk off of your shoulders as possible by using insurance where applicable. All insurance is, is cash delivered exactly when you need it. So the insurance is not just critical, but you have to align the insurance you're buying with the buy-sell agreement wording so that the policy language matches up with the language in your document. So we'll just take death, for example. If death is a triggering event, well, the policy is going to deliver cash be the death benefit immediately so the deceased owner can be bought out. Okay. But again, there's not many owners that exit their company because of death. It does happen. That's why we buy insurance, but you're much more likely to have a lifetime buyout. So, so it's much more frequent for a, a well-established company that has good cash flows. They'll usually not buy term insurance for this kind of a situation. They'll usually buy permanent life insurance. Because again, it's more likely that an event other than death is going to occur. So something like a whole life policy, for example, is going to give you the death benefit if, if that occurs, but it's also going to build a tax efficient, very stable, highly liquid cash value that can provide money to facilitate some of these other events that come up during the, during the lifetime of the owner. So like I said, the majority of the trigger events I mentioned are, are things other than death. So this cash value, it starts to serve as a sinking fund for the company. So they're setting aside cash at some point. They just don't know when, but when one of these triggering events happen, they have a, a place to go pull the cash from. Uh, another kind of insurance I definitely want to mention is disability insurance. This is a lump sum of cash that is paid out when an owner experiences a permanent disability so the other owners can buy out their interest with cash. And we have to dig into the wording of the contract. Like, What does a disability mean in this policy? And does that language match what's in our agreement? And is the timing the same? Like we we saw a, a very well-crafted buy-sell agreement recently where they had this spelled out beautifully. It was the exact same language in the policy and the agreement, but they had the timing wrong, hmm. right? They had the agreement saying that the buyout was going to occur after 18 months of a permanent disability, but yet the insurance didn't pay out for 24 months. So that may be fine if the company has plenty of cash on hand, but in this case, they didn't, right? So we yeah. had to get that simple agreement just amended just to line up the, the timing of all this. So one of the things I want to mention on insurance before we move on is that 
if the owners are able to do this, and this usually is where health comes into play, you should put options in place to allow you to buy more coverage over time as the business value grows, as cash flows grow, because you never know that if the business is rapidly growing in value and you want to have more insurance, what you don't know is are you going to be healthy enough at that point in the future to even get the extra insurance? Mm. So if you put those options on your policy, you're protecting your health so that if it changes, you still have the right to go get more insurance. Uh, and that's also a reason why a lot of companies will put key person insurance in place on top of insurance for the buy-sell agreement because you know that might also be used to facilitate you know any uh, any shortfall in cash that you might need for a rapidly growing company. So that was tip number four. Shift risk onto the insurance company's shoulders whenever you can. Yeah. And tip number five, this is gonna this is gonna take a few minutes, but this is what format do you use for the buy-sell agreement? We want something that's practical. We want something that's tax efficient. So buy-sell agreements really fall into four different categories. And each has their own benefit, each has their own complexity, and there's also a tax impact. So if it's just Eric and I that own the company, then the format we might use is something called a cross-purchase agreement. That means I'm going to personally buy out Eric, or he's going to personally buy me out. And I'm just going to give some examples of if our triggering event is death. Okay, so if I die, Eric is going to buy me out personally. And because he's doing that personally, he's going to get a, an increase in his cost basis for tax purposes. So if maybe our, our company doesn't have a cost basis, maybe we took all the deductions we possibly could, and he's going to buy me out for $10 million. And then he sells the company down the road for $20 million. Well, because he bought me out for $10 million when I died, when he sells the company for $20 million, he's going to get $10 million of that back tax-free. Hmm. Okay. So it's real simple. If we're owning insurance, I own one policy on Eric, Eric owns one policy on me, super easy to administer. But if we get into three owners or four owners or five owners, you know, I have to buy insurance on each of the owners. Each of the owners has to buy insurance on me and vice versa. So you might have a company with, with four people, but you have to buy 12 different policies. So it can be a lot more complicated to manage. Yeah. So when you have three or more owners, typically the format that's used is something called an entity purchase agreement. So that means the business as an entity is going to buy us out. Hmm. So if you're the one who's exiting the company, you're going to get the same amount of money. But because the company is essentially redeeming your interest in the business, you don't get that step up in cost basis. So again, if we sell the company down the road for a much larger amount of money, we're going to be paying a lot more in tax. So we could have easily avoided if we use a, a cross-purchase agreement. So a lot of owners, especially with, with multiple owners in the business, they love the simplicity of the entity purchase agreement, but they like the tax efficiency of the cross-purchase agreement. So they want to have their cake and eat it too. Well, one way you can do that, the third method is to use something called an LLC cross-purchase agreement. So what this is going to do is take the tax advantages of the cross-purchase agreement. So we get that nice step up in cost basis, but it's going to give you the simplicity of the entity purchase agreement. So we're trying to get a little bit of both here. So the way this works is the the company is going to make a distribution to each of the owners. And each of the owners is going to take this distribution and they're going to put money into a special purpose LLC. The LLC is going to buy insurance on each of the owners. So now we only need one policy per owner, like I said before. Okay. So if death occurs, the LLC is going to distribute the life insurance death benefit or the disability bio benefit directly to each of the owners. So I get that money in cash. Now I take that cash and I go buy Eric out personally. 
Okay. okay. So it's the, it's the same kind of a, kind of a, an arrangement here. It's just, we're just, we're just using an LLC to facilitate this, to get us the, the tax advantages that we want with the simplicity. Right. And then the, the, the fourth agreement agreement here is the fourth option. It's a hybrid. We're taking elements of each of these. Right. So we might have, for example, if death is a triggering event, we might be using the LLC version of this. Right. But if, if it's Eric's retiring, then maybe we have a different arrangement. Okay. So this is usually when we bring the legal team in and start getting into the, the tax laws and different, different situations with the company. But you know, it, this does not have to be super complicated. Here's the thing. <laughs> I'm glad we're going to give your contact information out because this is, <laughs> you say it's not, you say it's not complicated, but man, this is complicated. <laughs> I mean, if, if I was a business owner, my head would be swimming right now going, man, I have no idea if my buy-sell agreement incorporates any of this stuff. Or, you know, I'm sure there's people out there that are don't have one at all in place and have, are thinking, man, I've never even thought about all these different moving parts. So, again, I'm glad they're contacting you on this um, because you, you've got a deep bench, my man. So that that's great. Um, is there anything else you want to cover before we wrap this one up? Yeah, I just want to mention one more thing, and I just want to demonstrate how fast your hard-earned business value can disappear if you don't have an agreement in place. Okay. So take a situation where you know one of the owners dies, and the surviving owner decides, I'm just not going to continue this business anymore. I don't want to be involved in buying out this shareholder who just died. I don't want to be in business with their family. So uh, I'm just going to dissolve the company and liquidate it. And then I'm going to open up a new company and I'm basically going to start from scratch and just steal the clients from the old company. And now mm. your family gets absolutely nothing. Yeah. Right. So I would say that's bad. Yeah. Right. Uh, another one, again, if, if maybe the, um, the surviving spouse is involved and the owner decides, I don't like dealing with this person, you know, they don't know what they're doing. They're showing up, they're disrupting things. And again, I, I just don't want to be, involved in the situation. I'm sick and tired of making the payments and the agreement doesn't say I can't do this. So yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and uh, there's no non-compete here. I'm just going to go ahead and, and start that competing company. And I'm going to completely screw over the, uh, yeah, my, my ex business partner's entire family. Cause I don't feel like making these payments. So again, if you have the right agreement in place, you're going to, you're going to safeguard against these kinds of, you know, ridiculous things from happening. And there's a lot of people that go, I can never picture, you know, this situation happening and, you know, my business partners are great. They would never do that. And it's like, you know, sometimes people disappoint you. You think there's things they would never do. And yet, uh, you know, you, you find a situation where they, they, they surprise you and, and you can't go back after the fact and say, oh, you know, now let's add these, these provisions in the agreement. So just be thorough up front. Yeah. I mean, face to face, people are going to be really nice, but just like you said, one of them's dead <laughs> and there's only That's a right. certain amount of time when somebody's going to sit there and say, oh, you know, I, I want to make sure everything's right, but right well, things can grind on you, right? They can, and, and that's exactly it. You think of the pressure, right? Yeah. The, the surviving that's owners are going, you know, the company, Eric died. Eric was the, um, maybe he was the really the driving force behind a lot of our revenue. He's gone now. And we're seeing our revenue dried up. At the same time, we're making these giant payments to his family. And it's just putting so much pressure on us that we can't, we've got to cut our overhead. Yeah. Right? Well, what do we do? It shouldn't come down to, I've got to choose between Eric's family and mine. Right? Yeah. Very, very and, and that's why, again, if, if you have the right agreement in place and you funded it properly, well, then it's easy. It's like, not only do we have the agreement, but we also have the money and you know everybody walks away with, with and they were treated fairly. So that's the name of the game is just remember the F word fairness. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Just have to address us with, with fairness. 
absolutely. All right. Well, I, I would obviously encourage any any listener that is contemplating this um, or have has questions about it to reach out to you. What's the best way to do that so they can begin kind of looking at this with you and your team? Well, so a couple of things. So, yeah, if you want to reach out, if you have questions, a couple of easy ways to contact us. Like I mentioned before, another episode, you can email us at info at mcgovernwealth.com. Or you can go on our website, www.mcgovernwealth.com, and there's a contact us form right on the website. But I just want to spend a minute talking about like what's that interaction like. The first thing we do on this topic is we just have an initial discussion. We've got to learn about your situation, learn about your business, learn about your, you know, your your co-shareholders if you have them. And then from there, we just gather, if it makes sense to continue that conversation, we just have to gather the relevant business documents and we provide a very thorough review. And this is a this is a 15 to 20 page report that we do in partnership with one of the top law firms in America. So our firms align with this firm as as offices throughout the country. There's about 900 practicing attorneys in this space. Wow. And because of our relationship with them, that we get this complete analysis, you know, 15, 20 page report. It's going to explain exactly what it says. Uh, it's going to show you what it should say. It's going to give you recommendations for improvement. And normally when we do the analysis, it comes back with all kinds of just different pitfalls and tax traps and elements that we're missing. And then from there, it's easy to figure out, okay, what do we do about it? You know, what are the next steps? What should we do to craft a more effective plan with the owners? But it, it all starts that initial conversation. All right, Jim. Uh, again, I hope people take advantage of that and uh, reach out because the first step is knowledge, right? And that's why you do these podcasts. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, it's, it's just the first step. Learn a little bit about the topic. Understand if this is something that you should dive into more. And if so, just just take some action. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, Jim, again, thank you so much. And of course, our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast with Jim McGovern. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Jim comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. And we humbly ask you to share this podcast, rate it and leave a review. as This actually helps others find the show. Again, thank you so much for listening today. For everyone at McGovern Wealth Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Maximizing Outcomes podcast, brought to you by Jim McGovern and the McGovern Wealth Group. Be sure to follow the show to be notified when new episodes become available. To suggest a topic or guest for a future episode, or learn more about how we can help to maximize outcomes in your life, visit our website at www.mcgovernwealth.com. This podcast is intended for general public use and is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or McGovern Wealth Group, and opinions stated are their own. By providing this content, Park Avenue Securities, LLC, is not undertaking to provide investment advice or a recommendation for any specific individual or situation or to otherwise act in a fiduciary capacity. Please contact a financial representative for guidance and information that is specific to your individual situation. Guardian, its subsidiaries, agents, and employees do not provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Consult your tax, legal, or accounting professional regarding your individual situation. Jim McGovern is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS. Member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. 
McGovern Wealth Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. CA Insurance License Number 0F67329 AR Insurance License Number 7119103 California Insurance License Number 0F67329 Arkansas Insurance License Number 7119103 Compliance Number 2022-148375 expires December 2024.